1: Yeah, so 8.19, we cross now to the U.S., which has dealt with its own share of gruesome child abuse cases and passed the 2012 Protect Our Kids Act to do something about that. Teresa Huizar is executive director at the National Children's Alliance based in the United States and joins us on the line. Good morning from Seoul.
0: Good morning.
1: Can you just give us a bit of background on what led to the adoption of this act uh, and what exactly it has or still hopes to achieve?
0: Sure. The Protect Our Kids Act uh, really was the result of Um, a a number of groups that were very concerned about the fact that there were uh, child abuse fatalities in the U.S. and that those were getting inadequate attention. It wasn't so much that the numbers were going up or down. It's simply that despite a lot of effort there had not been serious decline in those numbers. And we believe that those Um, Deaths were, in fact, preventable, and so wanted to have an opportunity to really look at the root causes of those um, deaths and find out how better to prevent them and to um, really spread better practices around that. So what the Protect Our Kids Act really did was establish a national commission that would um, conduct hearings around the country and really examine practices, both good and bad, so that legislative recommendations could be made.
1: So the the problem of child abuse in the home is not only is it very difficult to prevent, it's also sometimes very difficult to shed light on on, on very private cases. I mean, the the awful incident I mentioned briefly before involved a a seven-year-old boy here who was kept in a refrigerator for years, and that only came to light when um, there was an investigation into children who happened to be missing from school for an extended period of time after another child abuse case of a girl that managed to escape alive. But... you know it's obviously horrendous we we just simply don't imagine these things could be happening in the apartments and houses surrounding us
0: well i think unfortunately because we think of um, individuals who commit child abuse and certainly any fatalities as somehow monsters are quite different from us We really fail to notice things like, you know, we have a neighbor whose children are never seen out of the house. I mean, that should cause concern, or children who don't go to school for for prolonged periods of time, which should also cause concern. So I think one thing that we need to dispel is the myth that somehow the individuals who commit these acts are so radically different from ourselves. They're folks that we go to school with, that we might attend a faith community with, that we see in the grocery store, and that are, in fact, our neighbors.
1: If people fail, though, to heed those warnings, uh, is it not just very challenging to prevent these very awful isolated cases from occurring?
0: Well, I think we need to remember what the average case is actually like. The average case is not someone shutting a child up in a refrigerator. The average case um, involves a child under the age of three, um, and 70% of those cases in the U.S. are neglect deaths. So they're not someone who's physically abused to death, as you might um, imagine from reading media reports or other kinds of things but actually a variety of actions have not been taken on their behalf that leads to the child's death. So Mm. we believe those to be highly preventable. Um, I think sometimes because people often think of it's a child shaken in a moment of anger or, you know, thrown out the window or something very theatrical, which those kinds of situations do in fact exist, and there are those horrible tragedies, they imagine that impulsive act as completely unpreventable, and it's simply not true. The majority of child abuse fatalities can and should
1: be prevented. Yeah, I mean, in, in this case, in Korea that I mentioned, the the father apparently had been very upset with the, the son for allegedly lying to him. It was a beating that occurred over a, a period of time. It wasn't just impulsive for a few seconds. And, um, and the mother was present as well. Uh, and, you know, one parent going off the rails is one thing for both parents to be involved. How rare is that?
0: There are a couple of things here, and again, you know, I can't speak specifically to this case, but just about dynamics in general. I think that um, it's not at all rare for um, abuse to escalate over time. Child abuse is really not any different than domestic violence in that way, and enter a personal partner violence, for example, where it tends to escalate over time. So actually with children who've been physically abused, if you were to do a bone scan of them or those kinds of things, you typically do see repeated fracturing over time or repeat repeated horrible bruising um, over time or repeated shaking over time. So, again, I think the myth that it's a one-time occurrence is just that, typically. Um, a myth. In terms of an, another parent being aware that the abuse has, has gone on, unfortunately, because th- this tends to be a pattern of behavior, that awareness um, is fairly frequently there. And one thing to keep in mind is whether or not it was the case in this particular case, there's a high level of co-occurrence between domestic violence and child abuse. Mm. So often you have a parent who may not intervene as another caregiver abuses the child because they're afraid they're going to be a victim of that same abuse.
1: Okay, well let me give a couple of examples i am you know literally aware of a couple of families uh in my neighborhood where you know that it, it's quite obvious that some of the children are, are favored o- over others and i hear stories about you know the the eldest of the siblings being particularly verbally abused, but not necessarily physically Um. abused. I mean, is is that cause for alarm, or do we... I mean, where do we draw the alarm Sorry, the line between a normal family dispute and something that warrants attention? You can't be intervening in all your neighbour's affairs all the time, obviously.
0: Well that um, one thing to keep in mind is here in the U.S. in particular, every state has state laws defining very specifically what constitutes abuse. So often we find that individuals simply don't know where those lines are drawn, and when their attention is drawn to where they fall, I think it becomes a little, and they have training about how to recognize signs of abuse, Um, we do find that people will report abuse um, when they see it. So I, I think that Um, One of the great challenges is that the general public often do not know what are signs of abuse. Now, certainly if someone's talking to children in a harsh way, that's concerning. However, um, I think that that... in the United States, it would be a very rare occurrence for child protective services to intervene because of something like that. Mm. Um, Typically, the laws are much more specific about, especially in emotional abuse cases, it has to be something significant enough to cause long-term damage or harm. Um, And so not simply something that would cause momentary upset, that, that sort of thing. However, back in terms of the subject of child abuse fatalities, which we've been talking about, of course, those kinds of situations are not ones involving emotional abuse. Um, There may be emotional abuse in addition to the physical abuse or the neglect that causes the child's Mm. death, but it's the signs and symptoms around the physical abuse, the neglect, or even their children who are sexually abused to death, it's signs and symptoms around that that we want people to be aware of and really paying attention to. Yeah,
1: because it's just very difficult to imagine when you you hear of emotional abuse, Uh, It's hard to imagine that escalating, but obviously in some cases it it does escalate um, with horrifying consequences. The other question I wanted to ask you is what's the appropriate punishment? I mean, you you might might have situations where parents have other children to look after. You know, if they're both in prison, what happens to those children, etc.?
0: Um, you know, the laws in every state set penalties in the U.S. that relate to um, various acts. And I think it depends on, in many ways, the way these laws are established. It really depends on what happened. You know, for example... It's a very different thing. Let's say you have a parent who is drunk, falls asleep, a small child wanders out the door and is run over by a car and killed in the street. That's one level of culpability. There's a different level of culpability that attends to someone who purposely beats a child to death. So I think that when we're talking about child abuse fatalities, we have to um, understand that it encompasses a very Mm -hmm. wide range of behaviors between intentional acts, that were intended to cause harm and negligent acts that um, are, are still um, fatal in their outcome and are highly concerning and for which people did deserve punishment, but were not intended in and of themselves to cause the death of the child.
1: Yeah, in those situations, it could compound the suffering... To, to remove them entirely from their families, for example. Um, we've got to leave it there. You've raised some interesting points there, and, and we appreciate you taking the time. Teresa Huizal from the National Children's Alliance, thank you.
0: Thank you so much for having
1: me. And bye further, bye. Any further questions, you can email us, efmthismorning at gmail.com.